Anchored is a production of the Classic Learning Test based in Annapolis, Maryland. Reconnecting knowledge and virtue. Visit us at cltexam.com. Welcome back to the CLT offices. We're glad you're here. Today, we're excited to have Dr. Jennifer Frey, Professor of Philosophy at the University of South Carolina. If this is your first time joining us, I'd like to take a little bit of time to explain what Anchored is. This is a program where our CEO, Jeremy Tate, engages in conversations with leading thinkers on topics at the intersection of education and culture. As always, we at CLT greatly appreciate your feedback, so please rate and review this episode and send any questions or comments to anchored at cltexam.com. We have the CLT coming up on December 5th. Registration details can be found on our website. Now, without further ado, let's get on to the conversation. Welcome back to Anchored, the official podcast of the Classic Learning Test. Today, we have a very exciting guest. Dr. Jennifer Frey is an associate professor in philosophy at the University of South Carolina. Prior to joining the philosophy faculty there, she was a collegiate assistant professor of humanities at the University of Chicago. Dr. Frey earned her PhD in philosophy at the University of Pittsburgh. Dr. Frey, welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. COVID impacted the Frey family, and your husband, Chris, is also a philosophy professor at the University of South Carolina, and COVID took out all of its wrath on the Frey family. You got (laughs) sick with COVID, and then you also had all of the uncertainty with six kids and trying to navigate schools, but you're still standing and smiling and laughing. What what have the last several months been like for you? They've been challenging, you know, to be frank. Um, So back in March, when all of this happened, five of my kids were in school. And so they, they were all pulled out of school. And my husband and I were in the middle of the semester. It was a um, catastrophe <laughs> for our house. You know, we weren't set up to deal with this at all. And so what ended up happening was that, um, you know, we would just kind of homeschool the kids all day. And then Chris and I would record content for our classes between like nine o'clock at night and two in the morning, because that was like the only time that we had. So I don't know, you know, for like three months, we were just absolutely exhausted. (laughs) And then, you know, over the summer, we sort of were trying to catch up. But then we had the problem that our public schools were not reopening. So I had two weeks to find all the kids schools, <laughs> which was extremely challenging, uh, to put it mildly. Um, but, but somehow that worked out. Um, and then their first week into school, I got COVID <laughs> and they were quarantined for three weeks. So really their first month of school was e-learning despite all of my insane efforts (laughs) to prevent that from happening. But now everything has kind of calmed down a little bit, comparatively speaking, in our house and um, everybody's back in school. But of course, I'm in a giant hole, which I feel like I'll probably just remain there. It's fine. I've resigned myself to being behind. Something beautiful that happened in the midst of that that suffering was, was and I just got to get some sense of this through Twitter and, and following you and Chris, is, is just the outpouring of love and how much support that y'all have in South Carolina and then also just nationally. You're a well-loved family and, and uh, glad to see you uh, healthy and back and, and doing, doing all the things you're doing. Thank you. Yeah, the support was overwhelming and truly, truly grateful for that. So, Jen, can you give our listeners a, a bit of background on yourself, um, specifically 
what led you to this passion you have for philosophy? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think I'm something of an unlikely philosopher. I'm from a Rust Belt city in the Midwest, and I went to public school. Obviously, no philosophy was taught in my public school, and I was kind of a a normal Midwestern kid in so many ways, which I was actually thinking that I wanted to study English literature or maybe history. I I realized right away I just didn't have the dispositions to do uh, serious historical work. And my English literature class was definitely too ideologically driven for me. And then my philosophy class just killed me. I mean, it was so hard. It was so challenging but it seemed really important. (laughs) So I kind of got bit by the philosophy bug and I had some really amazing professors that had a huge impact on my life. Uh, And I just, at the time also, I just had all these existential questions that I think a lot of young people have. And, you know, philosophy was actually addressing those questions for me. And yeah, I I just really got into it. And then I figured out you could be a philosopher. (laughs) (laughs) which <laughs> I did not realize was like an option in life. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, my undergrad, I, I just started asking right away, like, how can I do this with my life? And it turned out there were like very specific things you had to do. And I just started doing them. And miraculously, here I am. I'm still doing it. Still enjoy it. I'm still kind of confused, honestly, <laughs> about some of these deep existential questions, but I like wrestling with them. And there are no more important questions to ask than the kinds, kinds of questions your work has been focused on. So you've discussed and researched happiness at length. Who doesn't want to be happy? Uh, including in a major research project entitled Virtue, Happiness, and the Meaning of Life. So when I think about this, you know, happiness in modern society, it often takes the form of meaning that one should feel good uh, today in whatever they're doing. But this often translates to kind of a superficial happiness. What is your vision of happiness based on your research and studies? Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks. So the reason why happiness has kind of been reduced to this idea of feeling good is because in the social sciences, where you have to be able to measure everything, um, that's their conception of happiness. So if you look at the social sciences, people who are doing, you know, real happiness studies, uh, they're trying to measure something. And they think they can measure subjective psychological states, right? So most of the data that we have about happiness coming from the social sciences is based on self-reports, right? Like, how do you feel? And sometimes it's just a questionnaire about whether or not you feel good in the sense that you have an overall balance of more pleasure states than pain states. Some of them are more sophisticated and consider the full spectrum of your emotional life. Some of them even include some kind of cognitive assessment, like, do you feel good about your life on the whole? But but there's really no objective component to any of this. It's really just all about how you feel. So even when they try to measure um, some kind of cognitive assessment, there's no objective measure against which they're going to say that your cognitive assessment is good or bad. It's just your cognitive assessment. So even if you're like a battered housewife, (laughs) you know, who objectively speaking is in a bad situation where we can say you're not really flourishing on this view, so long as you think you are, you are. And this is really radically out of joint with the way that philosophers have thought about happiness 
since the beginning of philosophy. So if you go back to Plato and Aristotle, you have an idea of happiness or eudaimonia that's really an objective measure of human flourishing. So they're asking questions about what is the highest good? Let's call that highest good eudaimonia or flourishing. I mean, the most literal translation into English would be something like blessedness. But all of these thinkers thought, you know, this was an objective good that a human being might achieve or not achieve in their lives. That is to say, they might actually be flourishing in their lives um, through the choices they make, or they might not, right? And the measure of their life is the extent to which they are flourishing or have achieved eudaimonia. You know, not surprisingly, I'm with the ancients on this. You know, I think that if we're going to say that happiness is something worth striving for, I mean, it's true. You started off by saying, who doesn't want to be happy? Well, of course, everybody does want to be happy. It really structures our practical reasoning and our choices. We want to be happy with our lives. So really, the question is for the ancients, well, what is that condition? What is objective flourishing for a human being? And what's necessary for me to attain it? And their answer is, well, you need dispositions of thought, choice, and feeling that will actually get you to objective human flourishing. And they call those dispositions the virtues, right? So you need things like justice and temperance and courage and practical Mm -hmm. wisdom if you're going to live well as a human being. I'm kind of trying to push for this view, right? This old-timey view of happiness as something worth dedicating your life to. Well said. So connect this to education. So, so what work do you believe in education and educational reform? CLT kind of lives and breathes within this classical renewal movement. Um, what can be done so that students can understand at a deeper, richer level the meaning of happiness? Yeah, well, there's so much work to be done here. I mean, I think the first thing that we can do is actually reintroduce something like virtue education, um, that we can connect with the, again, sort of old-fashioned idea that the goal of education, right, is to form a human being. And not just to form a successful human being in the sense that we have kind of bourgeois measures of success, like, well... We want you to have a good job and we want you to have enough money for a nice home. Um, Those things are objectively good and important, but they aren't actually the proper goals of education. The proper goals of education are to become a flourishing person, you know, a, a good human being. That's what we want an education to do. And we've lost that vision. And so most kids, I mean, certainly when I was going through school, I thought that I was learning stuff that was going to help me like get ahead in life, right? That's why I'm there. I, it's a competitive world. I've got to get ahead. Um, and, and the thing is, when you're raised up to think that way, well, one, then everything becomes about competition and getting ahead of other people. Mm-hmm. But also you sort of lose the sense of like, why are you doing any of it? Like getting mm-hmm. ahead for the sake of what? You know, I mean, there are these larger questions that are just not being addressed at all in education that are actually the most important questions. Questions like, well, what's actually going to fulfill me? You know, if I'm thinking about a career and a job and what I'm actually going to do for the rest of my life, what's actually going to fulfill me? Yes, I want a home. I want a family maybe. But what's a fulfilling life in that home? These are questions that we're just not even asking anymore in education. And so I think we're doing a real disservice to students. I think we need to I think we need to reintroduce these questions 
And there are so many ways we can do it. We can do it through philosophy, through literature, like through art. Um, I mean, if, if we had a real, a real education, it seems to me that these fundamental human questions wouldn't be so sidelined, right? It wouldn't just be about attaining skills. Mm-hmm. Skills are important, but they're not the end goal. Jen, a few weeks ago, we had on your colleague, and I believe you actually made the introduction and first told me about Jessica Hooten-Wilson, who is the leading Flannery O'Connor scholar. And both of you actually came onto the CLT Board of Academic Advisors, which we're thrilled about. Uh, but we had uh, Dr. Wilson on uh, the CLT podcast. She talked about the idol of use, that students come into her classroom with this utilitarian mindset that, uh, that maintains a view of education, that everything has to have this practical, vocational application. Uh, you were just speaking into that. When you have freshmen, sophomores, you know, the University of South Carolina, uh, are, are, are many of them kind of, what's the point? Why, why do we do philosophy in the first place? Or are they excited to be doing something totally different? It depends on the class. You know, some of my classes, almost no one is a philosophy major. So for example, my medical ethics class that I'm teaching right now, those are mostly young people who are getting a degree that they think will enable them to go into med school, right, when they graduate. And they're kind of confused about why they're in my class. <laughs> you know, like they know that it's a requirement, right? But they're not so sure why they're there. And I think there are so many obstacles to getting them to see the value of philosophy in particular. Um, but I think the biggest obstacle really for everyone teaching in a university is to get them to see beyond a grade. You know, they come in with this mindset, like, I just have to get an A. And so then in every exchange, I've spent all of today meeting with my students, going over drafts of paper. It all boils down to what do I need to do to get an A? And I'm just like, no, I'm not going to answer that question. Like, we're here to make you a better writer. We're here to help you construct a better argument. And if you have a good argument, you're going to get an A. But let's just focus on your ability to make an argument. What is it that you really think here? What is it that you're trying to say? So I think really getting them out of that mindset that it's all about a result, where the result's actually the wrong result. And I try to tell them things like, you know, in my first philosophy class, I didn't get an A. On my first philosophy paper, I got a C minus. And that's actually how I ended up in philosophy because I, I'd never gotten a C minus on anything in my entire life, right? And this paper on Descartes that I spent like a week writing, it was trash. <laughs> it was a trash paper. <laughs> and here I had this professor just being like, yeah, you know, this is terrible. What are you doing? And this was like simultaneously horrifying to me, but also exciting. Like, wow you know, this is hard. Like, how do I, like, what's going on here? So I just, I just want to push them to be curious, right? To, to really strive to learn something. Worry about your grade later. Let's think about this for a minute. For, I don't know how many, maybe, maybe 100 students every year or more, you may be the only window they ever have into this whole world. Do you have any like anecdotal stories? I mean, have there been some kids where like their mind is just blown and the trajectory of their life is just in another direction? Oh yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I'd like to say, you know, that happens every time that that would not, <laughs> that would not exactly be accurate, but it happens enough. I have all kinds of students really from all walks of, I mean, one of the reasons I love 
being at a big state school, you know, where I am, we really have students from all walks of life, from all around the world, from every perspective you can imagine. And I, I mean, you, you can just see the ones who are really in the grip of a problem. And these are the students that end up in your office, really pressing you, really excited. And yeah, a fair number of them will end up minoring in philosophy or they end up coming to the philosophy talks that I'll tell them about, or they'll just ask me for like further reading. I try really hard to have, insofar as I can, a personal relationship with my students uh, to let them know that I, that I actually do care about them and I want them to succeed. And so, yeah, there's a, there's, there's a lot of kids that end up getting excited about philosophy. And I'll tell you the number one impediment to someone becoming a philosophy major, it's not the students, it's the parents. (laughs) The parents are like, no, (laughs) you know, like, I mean, there's so much resistance because they see it as a waste of their money. The reality is that parents are spending a lot of money to send their kids to college. And so they see it as an investment. I don't really have a problem with that. But the question is, it's an investment in what? You know, and the, re- the question always comes back to what is the point of an education? And I think, especially in a time of really high economic anxiety, which is certainly an apt description of the time we're in now, you know, people want to see a good return on their investments. And so this tends to make parents think that their children ought to major in something very practical, major in business major in hotel management, major in something where it seems like you're going to learn some skills and get a job where you're going to make money. I don't want philosophy to have to compete on that level because philosophy isn't a skill. I mean, it involves skills. It involves writing skills and critical thinking skills, but it can't be reduced to a skill. I mean, that's the benefit of it. (laughs) Um, You know, And I mean, it's supposed to be transformative for you in specific ways and um, to help you to live a better life, no matter what you go on to do, whether you go on to develop um, software or whether you go on to run a company, philosophy is always going to have benefited you in a very deep way if philosophy is being done right, but let's just assume for the sake of argument that it is. And, um, you know, I've been, I've been in this game long enough that, of course, I've seen my friends and my students and my colleagues leave philosophy and do any number of things. Sometimes they become Department of Justice lawyers. Sometimes they become um, computer programmers. Sometimes they become iBankers. Sometimes they become high school teachers or whatever. I mean, they, they go on to do all sorts of things. Um, But one thing that's common to all of them is that they maintain these philosophical dispositions and they have a certain way of thinking and seeing problems that enables them to succeed in whatever they do. And the reality is, and this is an empirical fact that bears mentioning, you know, people who major in business have lower economic outcomes down the road than people who major in the classic liberal arts. That's a fact. Now, 
I'm torn about selling the liberal arts that way because it reduces their value to a use value. So it's like, insofar as I play that game, I've accepted the terms of that game, which I don't want to accept. But if you're all playing that game, let me please point out you're playing it poorly. <laughs> like if you want to play that game, could you do it a little bit more, you know, successfully? So I, you know, I feel torn about this, but even if you want to reduce philosophy to some kind of utility calculus, we still come out better than business or hotel management. Sacred and Profane Love, your podcast. Um, tell us about that. If our listeners, if they love what they hear today and they're going to go listen to one episode, what would you recommend to start off with? Uh, the first episode. <laughs> I would recommend the first episode. The first episode was with my friend, uh, Thomas Joseph White, who's a Dominican uh, who teaches at the Angelicum in Rome. And we talked about uh, one of our favorite writers, Flannery O'Connor, and to what extent uh, she correctly called herself a hillbilly Thomist. So mm. we go through, well, first we go through Aquinas on Grace, and then we go through three of her stories uh, to show, you know, ha- the the work of grace, the action of grace in the stories. I think it's a great episode. It's just a friendly, most of my episodes are just friendly conversations where two people are like trying to figure something out. So if you like literature and philosophy and theology, then yeah, check out my podcast. One of the questions we always ask our guests, and, and we tend to, to have very busy people on the podcast that are involved in, in, a, in a whole handful of things. How do you maintain the, the discipline uh, of reading on your own, uh, of just leisure reading? And uh, what are you currently reading that you'd be, be open to sharing about? Um, well, you know, it's funny. Um, this is like the gap between theory and practice, right? So I'm not sure to what extent any of my reading is really leisure reading, but I'll just tell you what I'm reading right now. First is Chris Beha's novel, uh, The Index of Self-Destructive Acts. And the second is Phil Kly's uh, latest novel, Missionaries. Um, they're both spectacular in very different ways. You know, Phil Cly uh, won the National Book Award in 2014 for his uh, debut book of short stories called Redeployment. Um, and Missionaries is his debut novel. It's wonderful. Yeah, I highly recommend. It's, it's about war. Um, you know, he's a, he's a former Marine. And uh, I would say he sort of writes war literature, kind of, kind of in the vein of like Joseph Conrad or, or Graham Greene, if you are into those uh, mm-hmm. novelists. And the Christopher Bea novel is really great because it's all about freedom. It's all about uh, what is freedom, what is free choice. And it just involves a lot of very endearing characters that end up in a splendid catastrophe. <laughs> so, so I recommend that one too. What do you recommend to your students when they come to your office and you, you've opened up this world to them? And we say, Dr. Frey, you know, what, do, what do you recommend that I read next? Your class is coming to an end. If there's one single work, what would that be? What's just one? Wow. Well, probably the confessions. So pr- probably just because, to be honest, it's probably the best book that's ever been written. And it's such a, it's such a weird book. It's such an honest book. It's such a profound book. It's such a complicated book. But really, anybody can pick up the confessions and just read it because it's the story of a human being, you know, who's struggling against himself, struggling with his own divided will, struggling uh, to understand things, making a lot of mistakes, uh, being honest about those mistakes, and in the end, finding God. 
And along the way, there's just all this great philosophy and theology and funny stories and horrifying moments and real moments of like pathos and humanity. It's just, it's an amazing book. Everybody should read it. This is great. So much wisdom. Uh, Again, we've been with Dr. Jen Frey, philosophy professor at the University of South Carolina and host of Sacred and Profane Love. If you subscribe to Word on Fire, you can see more of her great work there. Dr. Frey, thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe. And if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share with friends and colleagues. Join us next week when we'll be visited by Andrew Zorneman, president of Cana Academy. CLT, reconnecting knowledge and virtue.